Let's pray together. Father, thank you for an opportunity today to reflect on the perfect wisdom that you provide us in your revealed word, in, 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 in our experience with other believers, how you guide us even at times when we feel like uh, we're surrounded uh, by darkness. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be able to gather here today in worship. Uh, I pray, Father, that you uh, continue to be honored as we study your word, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. We welcome you uh, today to our online services of worship here at Blue Valley Baptist Church. We are glad that you're here. And as has already been mentioned, um, we're trying our very best to uh, be a, a good steward of those who are joining us online. And we have an opportunity for you to share with us um, if you have been with us during the month of April in worship. There was a link, if you're on the eDove mailing list, email list, that went out this week that would allow you to record uh, your attendance for the month of April to our online services. We're going to make sure that's sent out again so that we can get a, a complete picture of who has been joining us for our online services. If you're a guest here with us, however, again, as already been mentioned, um, and you don't get the EDUV, you can let us know if you've been here during the month of April by emailing us at justask at bluevalleybaptist.org. Now, we're all aware that uh, a week from tonight, the stay-at-home order here in Johnson County will expire, and we have already been making plans for us to begin to phase in gathered worship um, at both of our campuses, and those plans will be finalized this week, and they will involve, at least initially, a way to blend in-person participation in worship and online participation in worship. Again, we'll let you know what all of those uh, plans are as we finalize them this week and what our target date for starting the, the, this new phase of church life as we come out of the stay-at-home order this week. So be watching the EDUV, be checking on the website, also be looking at our social media pages. Again, it's good to have you with us today for our online services at Blue Valley Baptist Church. Someone once said, and I've, I've tried like crazy to try to figure out exactly who it was. It was either Mark Twain or Real Will Rogers, someone like this. But, but they said, nothing will stop a good conversation quite like someone showing up who actually knows what they're talking about. And today what's going to happen is we're going to have someone show up who knows what they're talking about. To this point in our journey through the book of Job, we have seen Job and his friends go back and forth and back and forth and talk and talk and talk and talk about the complexities of life, and so far they've, they've gotten nowhere. The question that they are debating is, in many ways, the big question of life. Why do people suffer? And Job's friends have said there's only one explanation for why people suffer. People suffer because they've done wrong. So God will, in an almost reflexive kind of way, punish evil, and He will, almost in a reflexive kind of way, reward good. And Job, it's important to know this, Job doesn't necessarily disagree with this. In fact, if you really pay close attention to Job's words, Job is, is actually saying, I, I get what you're saying. But his rebuttal has been, but I haven't done anything wrong. And so what he has done in this book 
is he has asked God to show up and, and tell him, what have I done wrong? Because again, in his mind, I must have because I'm getting this treatment. And if I have not done anything wrong, God, this is Job in his worst moments, he's saying, then you're unfair and arbitrary in your treatment of people. And all of this back and forth has gotten them nowhere. Then someone shows up who actually knows what he's talking about. His name is Elihu. And those who study Job really don't quite know what to make of him. By his own testimony, he's younger than anyone who has been talking to, to this point. And as a matter of fact, we haven't even known he's there. He's, he's kept completely silent to this point. And because of his youthful boldness, some who study Job view him as arrogant and cocky and unfeeling or worse. But I believe, and so do others, that there's a handful of reasons for us to think highly of him, and to pay very close attention to what he says. Let me give you a few of those reasons. First, neither Job nor his friends have any rebuttal for anything he says. He speaks, no one speaks back to him. Second, God rebukes Job for what he has said, and he rebukes Job's friends for what they have said when he shows up at the end of the book, but he has no rebuke for Elihu. Third, the things that Elihu rebukes Job and his friends for are the very same thing that God will rebuke Job and his friends for when he begins speaking in Job 38. And then finally, much of what Elihu says is a foreshadowing of God's speech beginning in Job 38. He, he, he does, it seems, kind of prepare us for the voice of God. But I, I do get why so many who study this book, in fact, if you've read it on your own, maybe you've kind of dismissed him as well, dismiss what he has to say. On first blush, his words do sound very much like the words of Joe's friends. He, he does speak of God as rewarding righteous living and punishing unrighteous behavior. But, but he does it with a nuance that really is the key to everything. Job's friends have argued that suffering is God's reflex to our sin, and Job has said that God is either unfair or arbitrary in determining why someone like him would suffer. Elihu instead says that the answer to the question of human suffering is that God always always has a purpose for it. His is the longest speech in the book, and much of it is a rehash of what has already been said. But if we focus on, on this kind of new perspective that he is bringing to the discussion, we, we see three purposes beyond that, that judgment of sin and rewarding of righteousness for suffering. First, God uses suffering to speak, to speak. If you have your Bibles, find Job 33 and follow along as I begin reading in verse 14 of Job chapter 33. He says, for, for God speaks in one way and in two, though a man does not perceive it. He's saying God speaks, but sometimes we miss how he speaks. 
And then he gives the two ways that God speaks. First, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while they slumber on their beds. Then he opens the ears, he causes them to hear the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that they may turn aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. And so he's saying in these days really before Scripture, because this is an ancient, ancient book, in these days before Scripture, God would speak and warn people in dreams. That's the first way that God speaks that he alluded to back in verse 14. And then in verse 19, he gives the second way. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed. And with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. So in our times, we need to understand that God has replaced whispering to us in our dreams with speaking to us through His revealed Word that we hold in our hands, the Word of God. In our time, God is only truly silent when we neglect the Scriptures. And when God speaks to us personally today, He is doing it in our reading of Scripture or by drawing our minds back to a truth that is revealed in Scripture. But God uses suffering at times in our modern world to draw our minds to His Word in Scripture. C.S. Lewis released a book called The Problem of Pain in 1940, and it deals with why suffering exists in our world. Lewis was an Englishman, and if you know anything about World War II history, you know that 1940 was the depths of of the London Blitz, where London was being bombed over and over again by Nazi bombers. You may not know that 40,000 Britons died in that bombing, and over one million homes were destroyed. The audience to whom this book was released was hungry for an answer to the question of the problem of pain. And in the most famous line from the book, in fact, in one of the most famous lines in the Lewis canon, he wrote these words, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. And then the line, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And this is what Elihu is saying in the verses we just read. He is saying that God speaks through sickness on our bed and strife with others or with life that, that we feel deep in our bones. He speaks when we are brought like Job even to the brink of death. So God speaks through suffering. That's one of his purposes behind the experience of suffering when we go through it in our life, to, to hear the voice of God. But really, perhaps a more important question for the people who are experiencing this message today is if God is using suffering to speak, 
suffering that we are experiencing as we worry about the world situation, or suffering that we experience because we've experienced a job loss, or perhaps we've even been sick. What is God saying to me if He is speaking through suffering? And this is where we will be led to find out. Next, Elihu reminds us, God uses suffering to sanctify. In other words, when God speaks to us through suffering, it is to call us to cultivate our righteousness and to experience Him more deeply. Find Job 36, 5. Job 36, 5. And we're going to walk slowly through a, an extended section here so that we can understand fully what what Elihu is saying to Job and his friends here. He's going to talk to us about very important aspects to the experience of suffering. First, verse 5 of Job 36, behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. Now, let's stop right there. This verse is a very important word for people in the midst of suffering to hear. Many times in trial and suffering, we can conclude that God must simply have it in for us. This is where Job has landed in his own mind as he's reflected on the experience of suffering that he has. He is, he's really in his worst moments being drawn to conclude God just must for some reason have it in for me. But here Elihu is saying just the opposite. God is not prejudiced in his actions towards us. Look at it again. He does not despise any. He is instead, Elihu says, mighty in strength of understanding. What is he saying? He's saying that God is resolute in his purposes. When he acts, it's not based on prejudice for this person or against uh, that person. He is acting in accordance with his strong and mighty purposes. God is not determining what he does towards us based on how he feels about us. He's not prejudiced. Then he says this in verses 6 and 7. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. I want you to remember uh, last week when we were going through uh, the book of Job uh, and listening to Job's last speech, he was, he was saying that I have not had my right. I have not received justice from you, God. And here, Elihu is saying that's not right. God does punish the wicked. He does not keep the wicked alive. He does give the afflicted, those who are the recipients on this earth of their wickedness, He does give them their right. He does give them their justice. He goes on to say, He does not withdraw His eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, He sets them forever, and they are exalted. Now, there's a sense where not much uh, of what he has said sounds all that different from Job's friends. God does not keep the wicked alive. They are punished. He does give the afflicted their right, justice. And then verse 7 goes on to tell us some of the good things that God gives to those who are righteous, things like protection, things about like reward, things like, like prestige. And none of this is wrong in the long run. We who are Christians live in the hope of an eternal experience of protection and reward and prestige. So again, 
if, if stopped there, Elihu really hasn't offered us anything new from what Job's friends have said. But then he goes on to say this in verse 8. And if they are bound in chains, who are they? The righteous. Those who have been afflicted. If they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction. He, he's, he's introduced a thought into this conversation, Elihu has, that hasn't occurred to anybody. Both Job and his friends have operated from the mindset that God must only punish the wicked. God must only visit suffering on those who have done poorly. But here he has introduced the idea of a righteous sufferer, someone who has not sinned in a way to deserve their experience. The righteous suffer, sufferer is the, is, the, is the category of thinking that neither Job or his friends have been able to get to. If this one who is righteous is bound in chains and caught in the cords of afflictions, this means that the, that the, the righteous have an experience that is purposed by God in order to, to be able for God to accomplish His person. So, so, so no one really was wrong. They just didn't get the entire picture. Look again at verse 8. And if they, the righteous, are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then He declares to them their work and their transgressions. He, he declares to the righteous the, the state of their life. He causes them to reflect on the nature of their life that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears. He causes them to hear in this experience of the righteous suffering, opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve Him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. Here's how Job's been wrong. Job has never once, we've said this over and over again, never once proclaimed himself to be thoroughly sinless. He's just stated that he's not done anything to deserve what has happened to him, and he has been unwilling to probe the deeper reasons behind why that experience has been given to him. He has not entertained the notion that God might use suffering in the, in the life of a righteous person to further refine the righteousness of that already righteous person. And Elihu has pointed out how God might be doing that in Job's life, showing him some things about his character that might need refining. Job, again, has spoken at times in a way to God that we should not speak. He's accused God of not being fair and, and accused God of, of not being just. And, and, and Elihu is saying, in speaking in this arrogance, maybe, maybe the purpose of suffering is to root out that one thing that's in your heart that you really never paid attention to before. Elihu mentioning this arrogance is, is saying to Job, look, you're a good man, but we all have things we need to work on. And sometimes God brings the experience of suffering into the life of a righteous person so that they can further have that righteousness refined so they can be sanctified. So sometimes the righteous are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction so that God can further refine their character. That doesn't mean 
that they are being punished for sin, only that they are being given the grace in their suffering to examine their lives more deeply. I want you to think about about how our pandemic has caused us to reflect on the nature of our relationship with God. Normally, we have between eight and 900 on our two campuses on any given Sunday, but we've had between 12 and 1,600 watch our services online every week since the crisis began. Why? Because there are more people reflecting on their spiritual health than would have been otherwise. In fact, as I talk to my pastor friends, Blue Valley's not alone in this. There is uncertainty and anxiety that has, uh, that has accompanied this pandemic. And while we are not suffering per se, it has caused us, it has caused many in our world to stop and think about where they stand with God. It's even happened to me personally. I'll be 54 next week, which is not old by any stretch, unless your name is Micah Hayes and Kevin Pragel. And so, because I, I, I haven't reached that stage yet, I've not really given a ton of thought to my own mortality. But lying in bed one night, early on in this season of, of, of infection, I found myself thinking, you know, there are a whole lot of people on February the 1st healthy as could be, couldn't have imagined that six weeks later they'd be dead by this. And it caused me, laying there, to really, probably more seriously than I've ever asked the question of myself before, if I was ready to die. This this is what happens when God's people are confronted with the mere threat of true suffering. And it highlights one of the reasons behind the experience of suffering that we go through in life when we are servants of God. He is using it to sanctify, to further refine our righteousness. And I promise you, if I could have a conversation with many people in our church who are listening to this message right now, you would say, yeah, in this season of suffering, sickness a whole host of things, job loss, marital strife. God used that to refine me and bring me closer to Him. God uses suffering to sanctify. But even more than that, God uses suffering to save. He uses suffering to save. And by that, I mean that He uses suffering to do more than just refine the already redeemed. Sometimes he uses suffering to highlight the need of the unredeemed for a Savior. He does this in two places, Elihu does, in particular in his speech, and I want to point them to you this morning. If you would please look at verse 15 of Job 36. Job 36, 15. Notice what he says. He, God, delivers the afflicted, those suffering by their affliction and opens their ear, causes them to hear because of their adversity. Did you catch that? He delivers. Another way of of translating that word in books like Job and Psalms and Proverbs is rescued. He delivers. He rescues the afflicted 
by their afflictions. How? By opening their ear in adversity. In other words, he uses adversity to make those who need saving listen to their need for being saved. A translation I like to use says it this way, he reveals himself to them by their suffering. He reveals himself to them by their suffering. The Savior uses suffering to show those who need saving that they need saving and a Savior. Now look a couple of chapters back in Job 33. Job 33, find verse 29. Job 33, 29. Listen, it says, Behold, God does all these things, all of, all of these experiences as He's spoken in this first part of His speech of dreams and Suffering. He does all of these things twice, three times with a man. Meaning what? Means that there are multiple seasons in life where we will be confronted with trial and maybe outright suffering. And why does he do that? Look at verse 30. To bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. That he may be lighted with the light of life. To bring back the soul from the pit. That's why God does this. To take where there is death of spirit and to highlight their need for life. To, to, to take someone who doesn't think they need saving and don't, doesn't think they need redemption to understand that they need saving. They need redemption. They need a Savior. And He does that so that He can light that soul with life. You see, God is screaming to us, many in our world, who are, who are outside of faith in God, who, who really have no concept of what is going to happen when their last breath is taken, who spend their entire lives trying to, to pretend that that day will not ever come for them. He is saying to them, the worst thing that can happen to you is not to die. The worst thing that can happen to you is to not be ready to meet me and die. And so God in His mercy, in His mercy, will visit upon the unredeemed a taste of hell in this life so that they don't sit down for the full, awful meal one day. So God has a purpose in suffering and trial. It is not just to, to, to reflex, to, to act out in His holiness against sin. It is not just the natural byproduct of a fallen world. Suffering if God is sovereign over all things, serves a purpose. And His purpose is to speak to us, making God personal, to speak to us. And when He speaks, it is to sanctify those of us who already serve Him. And it is to redeem those who do not. And so, what is God's purpose for this season of uncertainty in your life? Is He using it to further refine you, Christian, follower of Jesus? 
And is He using it to call you to Himself so that you can experience Him as Savior to those who might not know right now? I would encourage you, if you have any questions about this that you want to flesh out with someone, email us when this service is over at justask at bluevalleybaptist.org and we'll do our best to contact you soon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being personal. And as much as it is counterintuitive for us who are accustomed to ease, to understand it. One of the ways you demonstrate your personal nature is to visit on our lives trial and at times outright suffering. To sanctify us who know you as Savior. To prepare us more for the eternity that is our ultimate reality. And for, Father, those who do not know you as Savior, to highlight the tenuous nature of life and their need for a personal loving God who has manifested that personal love through Jesus Christ. Father, help us not to waste this season. Help us to hear what you're saying. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.